We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast. We look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This episode, we'll be talking a U.S. Men's National Team review slash preview. Uh, the Bruce Arena drama, psycho shower, messy German dysfunction, a look back at 9-11 relative to uh, MLS and soccer, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light. He's back, baby. David Mossy, a soccer savant. And a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How you doing, my friend? Welcome back from Ibiza. The uh, disappointment in the studio today is palpable. It is. I mean, uh, everybody loves Stu Holden. Everybody loves Stu Holden. You, it, you came close to getting Wally pipped, but your seat is fine, and we welcome you back with open arms. How was your trip? How was it over there? Is it everything that it's cracked up to be? Yeah, it was absolutely terrific. Remember, I spent a few days in Madrid first by myself. Um, a lot of sightseeing, museums, monuments, cathedrals. You know, I love that kind of stuff. Yep. And then I headed over to Ibiza for a few days to attend Keith Costigan's wedding, which was beautiful. Uh, Ian Joy was there. I got to reconnect with him. Jason Carapisi, another of our former colleagues at Fox. Have it. Yep. Um, so fun times. Yeah. And Ibiza lived up to the billing. It is absolutely beautiful. It is heaven on earth. Now, do they say Ibiza or Ibiza? What, what's the what's the deal? What's the pronunciation? Frankly, uh, I didn't realize how much more they identify with Catalonia than Spain. So it's mostly Catalan there. So it's actually spelled E-I-V-I-S-S-A. Evisa is like what every sign says. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. Um, but it is it, in terms of the weather was nice, I'm assuming. Weather was great. And uh, the, uh, the the party scene and the excitement and Techno. all that. Really? Did you, yeah. did you head out to uh, some clubs? Did you do some... Some dancing and some... There was a little bit of that, but it was mostly pool and beach during the day, drinking caipirinhas on the beach. What's in the caipirinha? Do you know? It's Brazilian rum uh, cocktail. Just some rum. You enjoy that, no. huh? Yeah. Oh, wow. It sounds awesome. So uh, so you would go back then? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, and did you see any soccer while you were over there? I know you uh, you did some uh, sightseeing muse- museum-wise. but The day I arrived in Madrid, Real Madrid was playing Getafe. And it was, had I rushed to the Bernabeu right after my plane landed, I probably could have just made it. But it felt a bit crazy. to uh, So I, I passed on that. 
Well, we missed you. Uh, we missed your your your, uh, your smiling face uh, from a, a visual standpoint, but uh, we also missed your voice and your intellect. So, welcome back, my friend. Did you watch anything on all your uh, your travels there? Not on my travels, but since I returned, I've already caught up on Winning Time. This is season two of the show about the Lakers, the Lakers dynasty. Yes. Okay. Yep. Uh, the uh, season finale is uh, this upcoming weekend, and it could be the final episode ever because they're struggling in the ratings. The uh, creator, Jeff Perlman, is all over Twitter begging people to watch so they can keep going, but uh, no guarantees. <laughs> I'm also about to start Top Boy. This is the final season of this show, which has been dubbed the British Wire. It's this uh, show Ooh. that airs on Netflix about drugs in England and uh, I love it. Uh, so I'm looking forward to six episode final season. I can't wait to start that. There's six. Okay, so it's done now. Okay, all right. So I can, I, I can watch it. Uh, when, uh, when you were gone, Stu, among other things that he brought up uh, when he was here, was his uh, love for uh, Love Island. You ever heard of this uh, reality show? I am aware. You are, you are aware of it. Well, uh, through Stu, because he never shut okay, up. Okay, yeah. Him. So he, he wouldn't shut up about it. I have yet to check it, uh, to check it out, but um, that was his recommendation. I saw something called 7852, 78-52. It's Hitchcock's shower scene. It is a documentary on the scene in Psycho, the original Psycho movie from Alfred Hitchcock, uh, a, a classic, one of the great cinematic feats in history. And it's relative to the 78 camera setups and 52 cuts within this actual scene. So it's not even about the whole movie. It's about this specific scene and everything that Hitchcock did and everything that kind of emanated from this scene. And it's incredibly, um, uh, obviously, gory, but also, you know, sexualized and all the different things that went into uh, Janet Leigh and her stand-in double and all the different decisions that were made and all the little nuances and details that someone great like Hitchcock puts in that in the moment you may not recognize, but they go back and they have all of these um, you know, incredible actors and directors, a lot of horror directors talking about how it influenced them. And again, just the, the beauty of this, this horrific type of scene in a documentary. And I didn't think it was going to last, you know, it was an hour and a half type of documentary. I didn't think it would hold my attention for an hour and a half, but it did. It was a, it was a fascinating thing. It came out, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that, but I just stumbled across it. So that's my, uh, that's my recommendation for today. All right. You ready to light this candle, my friend again? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Well, let's start off with uh, the U.S. men's national team. When Stu and I were talking about last week, uh, when we were talking to you, we were in preview mode of what was going to happen with this national team. Now under, for the first time in, what, eight months after all the craziness, uh, Greg Berhalter. So Greg Berhalter era 2.0 starts off with a win, 3-0 against Uzbekistan. But I think... Uh, it's fair to say that it was far from inspiring in terms of the way that the U.S. played. And so there were plenty of takes as to what this is, because keep in mind, I think that there was, and again, fairly so, an expectation that we would see a progression, an evolution of this team, and that Greg Berhalter in particular would be able to kick on and provide something new and better. And for a lot of people, they were left wanting after this game. Again, it should be said that Greg Berhalter now is averaging three goals a game and has yet to let in a goal in his new cycle. <laughs> so, uh, so far, so good from a results standpoint. But I thought it was really interesting and not necessarily surprising. And, and again, I think fair that a lot of people 
looked past this actual scoreline and looked at how this team plays, which I don't think is anything you're going to put into a time capsule collectively or individually. And we'll go through some of that stuff here. But just general thoughts in terms of the results and the way that result came about, Musk. Well, we should point out when the goals were scored. Timmy Way has scored in the opening minutes, and then Ricardo Pepe and Christian Pulisic from the penalty spot in second half stoppage time. So there's a feeling that they kind of dressed up the scoreline late. It wasn't a real 3-0 win. So why, why does the when the goals are scored matter, or why should you care about that ultimately? Well, I wouldn't if it was a competitive match, but if you're analyzing a performance in a friendly, I think that does shape the fact that... Okay, but if the, if the U.S., if before the game you had said the U.S. is going to go out there and beat Uzbekistan 3 nothing, So you, you wouldn't describe that as a misleading scoreline for what the game was? Uh, no, but I'm just, I'm just curious, and I guess this is a bigger general type of question, is to, we, we wait goals. I get that. I understand, I understand. But that if these two goals that came at the end had actually come in the first 15 minutes and the U.S. had just gone on to win 3 nothing comfortably, you wouldn't care, right? Yeah, it would, it would shape it differently. The but it doesn't change the ultimate score, right? Right, right, right. right. But I only say that because I, I do think that it is, that it, like I said, it is fair to judge this team beyond the actual score and in totality how they played. And in that sense... This was not, again, as I said, an inspiring type of performance. But I will say that if you go back and look at the results um, from previous coaches, whether it's Gansler, Bora, Sampson, Bradley, Klinsman Arena, ultimately they lost their job. They were fired because of results. There is nobody out there that is going to scream and yell as to um, how the results come about if this U.S. team wins. Now, this is a very delicate thing for Greg Berhalter to hang his hat on because if you are not going to provide an evolved and, I guess, more romantic type of style and one that, again, is inspiring going forward into 2026, then you cannot afford to lose. And if you're just going to hang your hat on results, which certainly can happen, and if you go on and win everything and do really, really well relative to the results, I don't think Americans ultimately, in... in in, and I'm being a little general, care how this U.S. men's national team wins as long as they keep winning. Now, uh, Berhalter made one lineup decision that people feel contributed to the underwhelming performance. It came in the midfield, Luca Della Torre. We've seen recently the U.S., uh, in the absence of Tyler Adams, playing in more of a 4-2-3-1 with a number 10 playing behind the center forward. Uh, no Adams here. Also no Gio Reyna, who's the player most equipped to play in that number 10 role, must be said. But so Berhalter opted for a 4-3-3 with Luca Della Torre as that third midfielder alongside Moose and McKinney. We witnessed a lack of creativity from the midfield. The ball movement was slow at times. And then he doubled down on that by bringing on Tanner Tessman, who struggled. It wasn't until Malik Tillman came on with about 10 minutes left that the U.S. reverted to the formation that most people wanted to see. And they played better and scored those two goals late. So do you think that's a fair talking point? It, it is a fair talking point. However, if it would have been interesting, and, and again, I just... I. I kind of want it to happen sooner rather than later where everybody is healthy and everybody is there because then that's where the rubber meets the road, right? That's where people have to say, this is who is starting and this is who isn't starting. Regardless of the formation, it doesn't change the 11. In my expert opinion, you still only have 11 players out there. And so if, to your point, Gio Reyna was available, if Tyler Adams was also available, again, we're back where we started, where you have to take somebody off yeah. the field. It's a good problem to have, but it's a problem nonetheless. The U.S. from the midfield up has seven starters fighting for six spots, and Adams, McKinney, Musa, Reyna, Pulisic, Way, and Balligan. If they were to play a competitive match tomorrow against a quality opponent, one of those players I just listed 
wouldn't start. So that that's going to be a big call. Somebody's going to be somebody's going to be angry about. I I thought uh, Lilatore actually played well until he got crushed in the nose and had to come out of the game. Uh, So as far as the good, uh, I thought Tim Weah, who ultimately got or not ultimately who right off the bat got that first goal, but I still thought he had a good game. Dest was really really good and active and kind of just looking full of joy, if you will. Weston was doing, you know, up to his old Weston ways, finding moments. I thought he was good. Musa and then Matt Turner, when he was called upon, and I think the, uh, the indignant response of many that, that, that Uzbekistan would even dare to take a shot or have any type of uh, attack against this U.S. team was interesting to see. But ultimately, when it happened, Turner was there to stop the, uh, uh, stop the shots. When it came to maybe bad isn't is, is a little bit much, but certainly not good. Uh, I didn't think Tim Ream. I, I thought Pulisic was strangely ineffective, even though he did get on the ball. Uh, you mentioned Tessman coming in. He was not good. And then Balogun was interesting because I did not think he had a good game. And I still think that both he is trying to figure out how he fits into this men's national team and the, the players around him are trying to figure out. What was concerning was the amount of times that the width was on, uh, on offer and, and used to good effect by the U.S. men's national team. And these balls were either played in or the chance to play them in was there. That I did not see him making those runs. I did not see him making himself available enough times in that box. And look, maybe, again, we're, trying to, we're still trying to figure out what he ultimately is going to be when he puts on a national team jersey. But that for me was kind of what I thought we were going to see and kind of what we have been promised. And let's be honest, what we need. And too often, he wasn't there even making himself available if that ball came or the ball came and he wasn't there. Yeah, he did have a header off the post yep. in the first half, almost another Weston McKinney assist. And I thought he played very well and scored a nice goal against Canada in the Nations League final. So we did get a glimpse there of what he's going to bring to this U.S. team. But I do want to ask you about the Balogun pepe dynamic because mm-hmm. Pepe then comes on and scores a beautiful goal. He's in great form right now. Do you view that as a competition or do you think there's a clear pecking order right now? How do you see the Balogun pepe dynamic? I-, I am still not willing to just completely anoint Balogun as the man that is going to lead us to the promised land. And in the same way, I'm not ready to do it with Pepe, uh, Pepe, but he absolutely is in competition. And, but I also, it's different coming on as a substitute as opposed to starting. And so the work that Balogun will have done can certainly contribute to Pepe. And I know people are out there saying, yeah, it was the end of the game. And yes, it was against 10 men and all that kind of stuff. And so I, in a certain way, I'm going against what I was talking about earlier, where I'm discounting the, the goal from Pepe. But I do believe that Ricardo Pepe is in competition with Balogun. And it would not surprise me in the least, ultimately, if Pepe wins, uh, wins out when it, come, uh, when it comes to that. And it's still early days when it comes to Balogun. There are some interesting relationships being forged on this team because you have McKinney assisting Wea. They play together at Juventus. Pulisic and Moose are going to play together this season at AC Milan. You have obviously Reem and Robinson at Fulham. You have this PSV contingent now with Pepe, Tillman, and Des. So all those players are going to develop a pretty good understanding with each other, which I think the U.S. could benefit from. They did. And, and then there's just the continued growth of this team that you know, we, we, we talk about a lot when it comes to Greg Berhalter. And we'll get to that in a second. But on the field, how it manifests, you know, I mentioned uh, Serginho Dest. And his ability to overlap and his quickness and his energy and his 
one-on-one dribbling ability combined with Wea on that right-hand side, that was that was more dynamic than I've seen in a while. And so that was fun to see. So it doesn't necessarily have to come from club situations. But to your point, we've got a lot of Americans now that can establish some relationships. Although, you know, Weston McKinney's playing right back right now. So as long as they're on the field and as long as they have an understanding and I guess a, a faith in each other, that can hopefully be trans, uh, translated into the, uh, uh, the national team. Um, when it comes to, to, to Berhalter again, what do you think people specifically on the field are hoping to see relative to this juxtaposition with what happened in this previous cycle? It's a tricky one because when you rehire the same coach from the previous cycle, you're opting for continuity. You're basically telling him, we like the job you did. We want you to stay on that path. So I can't completely fault Berhalter for rolling out the same formation and, and, and sort of employing the same ideas that we've seen the last four years. But it's human nature at the start of a new cycle to want to see something different and some change. You use the word evolution. Uh, so that's going to be a tricky thing for him to, yeah, he's going to, listen, there are gonna, there's going to be some natural change over the next three years because new players are going to emerge. Other players are going to get old. You've added somebody like Balogun. But I don't think Burhalter is going to all of a sudden turn into a different coach here. He's going to keep doing what he did the previous four years, which U.S. soccer seemed to like, which is why they rehired him. Speaking of that, uh, Burhalter was asked about this, and he said the plan in 2018 was to bring this group through the two cycles. And, you know, I think he was being asked about his return and his getting another cycle and, and going through all of what's happened over the last eight, eight months. And so in his mind, uh, I, I think that what he, was, what he was trying to say here was, and I think this is fair, is that whoever was going to be hired after the 2017 debacle relative to the 2018 World Cup, it was with an eye to 2026. Not that you're completely bypassing 20, uh, 2022, I guess, in Qatar. And that is, rel- that is reflected in the fact that Berhalter, who ultimately got the job, was only given a three-year contract through the 2022 World Cup. But I think what he is saying here is that the, I- the ideal was that he or whoever was hired for that job was going to take this team and have them matriculate up to 2026 in a much better version with an understanding there was going to be a lot of young players and inexperienced players. And I think that that's, that makes sense that it ultimately ended up being him. I mean, he would have wanted that, but certainly if you had talked to him <laughs> probably in January of this year, uh, the chances of that happening were probably slim and numb, but here he finds himself going on, uh, going forward in charge of this team. I don't think that he's looking past next summer, nor should he. I don't think Matt Crocker, even though he's going to say all positive things about what's happening here and that, yes, this is a long-term type of project, but if it doesn't go well, and we'll talk about when it's not going well and the ruthlessness that you need to stem the flow uh, later on in the, in the pod elsewhere, if it does not go well, and if Matt Crocker and this U.S. Soccer Federation don't think that it is heading in that direction that gives us the best possible chance of succeeding in 2026, don't think for a second that they won't re-examine it. And I think next summer is a huge, huge moment for Greg Berhalter. Now, when they panned out to the crowd, I saw quite a few empty seats, which is curious considering this game took place in the soccer capital <laughs> of the United States. Uh, I haven't checked your Twitter the last few days. Did you get involved in this whole debate? I, I said that while St. Louis, from a older guy standpoint like me, I have you know history and I have perspective in what St. Louis has meant to me and has meant over the years. And rightfully, it has its place in American history and should be uh, 
should be praised and celebrated for it. But that does not mean that in 2023 that St. Louis is the capital of soccer. And there's plenty of other markets out there that can lay claim to that. I think that's what, uh, what I said. And I think Stu Holden agreed. Uh, do we need an Alexi Lala's top five biggest soccer Maybe cities in the Maybe power year? rankings. Let's see where we are. Because this can change. As Carly Lloyd will say, it is fluid. So we'll do a power rankings of what is the capital. I will anoint the capital. All right. And we'll do it at, at different periods throughout the year. And because, like I said, things can change and I, change. And I will anoint it again, like our power rankings anytime. It will be subjective. I will give you my top five. Let's uh, let's make a point of uh, of doing that so people can yell and scream uh, going forward. Um, anything else on this game before we move to the uh, preview? No, we should say from St. Louis, they now go to Allianz Field, St. Paul, Minnesota. That's where they'll face Oman, which is the... Uh, Rich man's Yemen, poor man's Saudi Arabia, according to Connor Roy. <laughs> uh, that one on Tuesday. The one uh, note, Matt Turner out because of the birth of his child. So it'll either be Ethan, Ethan Horvath or Drake Callender in goal. Uh, your thoughts on this one? All right. So Matt Turner is going home to uh, await the birth of his child. So congratulations to him and his wife ahead of time. I hope that uh, it is a wonderful moment. I hope he's he or she. I don't know if he's having a boy or girl, but I uh, hope it's a uh, help. Daughter, sorry, we're hearing a daughter from uh, producer Sean. So congratulations to them. Hope it is uh, healthy, and I hope uh, he gets some gets to spend some time. Although he's right back at it when it comes to uh, to Forrest and and the starting number one goalkeeper. Then, so we're either going to see uh, Horvath, who we have seen in the past, or kind of the the next Matt Turner, possibly in uh, Drake Calendar. So who would you start? You give it uh, to Horvath. Oh, I'd like to see Calendar. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. you might as well uh, might as well do that. And I think that that whoever Greg Berhalter puts out there, and I don't think there's going to be dramatic changes, but whoever he puts out there, and keep in mind that he had said that, that, uh, that he was going to make changes. And Greg Berhalter actually came out before the game and basically gave his 11. So we'll see if that trend continues where he comes out and says, this is basically who I'm going to play. Let the chips fall where they may. Even talking about how he was going to take some players out and they weren't going to play full 90s and all of that. But, I don't think there's going to be a lot of changes. I would like to see, you know, I, I want to con- continue to see what Balogun has to offer. Although to your point, you know, if Pepe is, if Pepe is challenging him, yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe you give him another look, although he's had plenty of looks uh, along the way. And then who comes, uh, who comes in goal will be interesting. But I do think ultimately, whoever the 11 is, there has to be a more positive feeling coming out of the game. And if that means, that they win three nothing, but the goals are scored into whatever you or anybody else out there deems <laughs> as the appropriate minute to Boy, score you're, goals. You're really hung up on this. I am hung up on it because, <clears throat> because, and again, I understand garbage time. I understand that the dynamic of a game changes, and the beginning of the game is different than the middle of the game. That is different than the end of the game. But ultimately, this is about winning. And again, I will go back to this: if the U.S. wins the World Cup in 2026. Nobody's going to give a damn about how it actually is done. They are going to care about whether we won. And I know I can hear everybody screaming and yelling. Yes, but in order to win, Alexi, against the better teams, you have to play better than when you played against uh, than what you played against uh, Uzbekistan. Get that, understand that, move on. And I do think that against uh, Oman, 
there has to be a quote-unquote better performance to satisfy some out there that want to see a much more romantic and evolved and progressive type of representation when it comes to Greg Berhalter and this team. And De La Torre, by the way, it sounds like is available, but he might be wearing a mask. That's what he's mm. been sporting and training. Phantom. You know? The yes. Phantom. I love it. We I should say, uh, remember, this was supposed to be Brazil and Argentina, and then Conmebol threw the U.S. a curveball by deciding to start their World Cup qualifying campaign during this window. We'll talk about those games in the next segment. And so the U.S. had to scramble and ended up being Uzbekistan and Oman, who I know aren't the sexiest opponents, but there is a desire in this cycle to line up some better opponents. And we're going to already start to see that in October with Germany and Ghana. And I think we'll see it moving forward. It's interesting because in Europe and South America, when a country is hosting a tournament, they don't have to qualify. They bemoan the lack of competitive matches. But for the U.S., they view it as an opportunity because they feel like friendlies against non-CONCACAF teams are actually more useful than 90% of the competitive matches against CONCACAF. Yeah, and, and we talked about this a little while ago in that U.S. soccer is going to spin it in the way that they see fit. And... You know, so Greg Berhalter and Matt Crocker and, and everybody out there is going to talk about how, you know, the expanded World Cup. And this gives us an idea about playing against Asian competition, which potentially we could face in an expanded World Cup. And so while this isn't ideal, this is the best that you could get. And in a certain way, again, to your point, it gives us an opportunity to test ourselves against teams and in, against regions and zones that we don't have a tremendous amount of experience with but could very easily get picked for our group come 2026. All right, anything about, excuse me, anything else about these two games? That's it. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, there's all sorts of crazy news going on. Even though it's an international break, still lots of news breaking. Uh, We'll be back in a second. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, welcome back. We got some uh, news and some, I guess, some breaking news over the last uh, 24, 48 hours when it comes to Major League Soccer. And we were just talking about head coaches and Bruce Arena, uh, not arguably, he is a legend when it comes to the game here in the United States with what he has done at every different level, uh, whether it's collegiate, whether it's international, whether it's club. Uh, We come to find out that Bruce Arena has resigned from the New England Revolution. Uh, and this is following an investigation uh, that uh, looked into Bruce Arena. He's been on administrative leave for, gosh, over a month now for what are termed as uh, alleged inappropriate remarks. And uh, the Athletic, our folks over the Athletic had reported that they were relative to complaints that were lodged by his longtime assistant, Richie Williams. Now, Richie Williams, I've known Richie for, for years, played against him, um, and I've just known him uh, over, over the years because he's been in the soccer world. And, I mean, he's been with, with Bruce Serena, as, by the way, has, uh, I guess, I, I, if I'm getting his title wrong, but technical director, sporting director, Kurt Anolfer over there. They've been in the orbit of Bruce Serena, either as assistant coaches or as players or just with him for you know, almost decades now, if you go back all the way to their Virginia days. So these are people that have, I guess, grown up around each other. 
and have benefited from each other over the years. Anyway, the Athletic reported that uh, these were complaints lodged by his longtime assistant, Richie Williams, who took over the team in Bruce Arena's absence while he was on administrative leave. And um, in a statement, uh, MLS said that certain, because they did this investigation with an outside source, that certain allegations had been confirmed. Then a Bruce Arena comes out after the announcement. And by the way, this came right after the New England Revolution had uh, dropped points. They tied uh, uh, one-to-one against uh, Minnesota, it was. And then they completely shut down their, their press availability, which was kind of weak, right? But anyway, uh, Bruce Arena said in his statement, I know that I have made mistakes and moving forward, I plan to spend some time reflecting on this situation and taking corrective steps to address what has transpired. And while this may not be an easy decision, I'm confident that it is in the best interest of both the New England Revolution organization and my family that we part ways at this time. So this was a carefully crafted statement from uh, Bruce Arena, and I can feel it being written and put out there through gritted teeth, knowing Bruce Serena. And we know that he is a larger than life type of personality. He is big, bold, arrogant, brash. It's what I think makes him great. It's what I love about him. And again, none of us know the exact circumstances. None of us know exactly what ultimately was said. This on the, on the surface to me looks like He's trying because he still has a contract right now that he's trying to get paid out, and something was come, some kind of agreement was uh, that, that was that they came together and they said this is what we're going to do, and and but in no way, shape, or form do I look at this statement from Bruce Arena as a genuine form of contrition, uh, contrition, or 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 ultimately that this is the definitive type. Uh, and final type of statement that we will see. And this story ultimately will come out. But it, it takes a great in the game. And if Bruce Arena never coaches again or is never involved with MLS again, and by the way, part of his, I guess, punishment here in terms of the findings is that if he wanted to work in MLS again, he would have to petition Don Garber and MLS in order to be allowed back in. Remains to be seen whether he is going to do that. But if this is the end, that sucks. That's a, that's a bad ending for, like I said, a legend of the game. And again, we'll find out, or maybe we won't, but I'd love to find out. People are like, well, why, why should you be, well, you know, why should you know what's going on? I guess we don't, we're not do it. We shouldn't necessarily, we don't you know, have to know what's going on, but I am curious. I'd like to know. I'd also like to know from a practical perspective, what constitutes this, t- this level of behavior that then would require someone to resign or require an investigation. Because obviously, if that's what is being, you're being held to account for, then you don't want that to happen going forward. And that's one of the reasons why I would like to see what's going on. The other reason is to get much more perspective in how we talk about this situation. But regardless this is a legend uh, going on in a way that I don't think he anticipated and in a very sad, sad way right now. And I hope, he, I hope it's not going on. I hope he continues to be involved in soccer, whether it's MLS or anything else uh, going forward, because I think ultimately he is, he is good for the game. And to, you know, I, I guess I can quote this, this, this uh, paragraph here in saying, 
I know that I've made some mistakes. Well, I'd like to know what those mistakes were. And I'd like to know if anybody else has made those mistakes, uh, whether it's you, me, or anybody that's listening. Hell, anybody on the coaching staff uh, there in terms of the things that have been done or said that may have been construed one way. Things that have been done or said that uh, the intent was not to offend uh, going forward. Anyway, we'll find out going forward. But it's a sad bit of news. Uh, And then from a practical perspective, this is a New England team that at times has been, been very, very good. Uh, this year, and you know they're they're fighting right now to go into the playoffs in their best possible form right now. And you take away this big bold personality out of that locker room and out of that organization, and he had responsibilities that go well beyond the actual X's and O's of what's going on in the field. And this is a loss. This is a loss for the New England Revolution. Uh, we had some MLS games this past weekend. The yep. one we want to highlight: uh, Inter Miami. 3-2 win over SKC. Campana with two goals. Inter-Miami minus Lionel Messi, who is busy playing for Argentina. More on that in a minute. But they are now unbeaten in their last 12 in all competitions. Six points out of a playoff spot. And what's so impressive about this is that, you know, missing all of the players for international duty and the question as to Dumbo, can you fly without that feather and that feather being uh, Messi? Well, they can fly. And they can get the goals they need and they can get the wins they need and that they need in order to make this run to, uh, to the playoffs. And that is so important. And I think, again, this just shows the messy effect in that if great players make others better and great players make average players good players. And great players are able to lift everybody around them. And in this case, a great player is able to do it even without even being on the ground and being around that team. And so that's a, that's a huge, huge win, a huge, huge three points. It was, it was tight there at the end, and SKC was pressing, but uh, interbend, but they did not break. Uh, you know, the wonderful, uh, there was one goal, wonderful goal where Busquets put the, uh, the, the, uh, put the ball down and played a quick free kick, which we don't see enough of nowadays, recognizing that people were screaming and yelling and complaining. So it continues to be, it's just incredible as to what is going on with Inter-Miami. Well, they've amassed a very good roster. It helps when MLS is rigging the rules for them. Exactly, exactly. So, but, you know, they're, they benefit from the rigging of the, of the rules. And, uh, you know, we're, we got our, uh, our tinfoil on right now. <laughs> this is wonderful. Just beat them. If you, you know, if, uh, if you got a problem with them, find a, way, uh, find a way to beat them. But nobody has yet found a way to beat this Inter-Miami team. Again, they won... Uh, League's Cup. They are in a final of the Lamar Hunt Open Cup and they are well on their way to getting into the playoffs here. Uh, It's going to be close, but the fact that they are even in this position just says so much about not just Messi, but how much has dramatically changed when it comes to, you know, I I am into this whole um, prime, uh, coach prime thing with uh, Deion Sanders here. And when you look at the fact that he changed 90 players, and use the changing of the rules and the portal and all that kind of stuff to do things that had not been done before. And in the process, I'm sure has riled some feathers. I mentioned that there's a lot of people that are hate watching this Colorado team right now. I'm just in because I was caught up. I don't know anything about this team and I was caught up in it. This is all about prime. I am mesmerized by the personality and this cult of personality that is uh, Deion Sanders. And you know, when it comes to uh, this situation here, Inter-Miami, they used the rules. And yes, they went and signed arguably the greatest player ever to play the, ever to play the game. And they did it in a unique 
and different and clever way. And if, if Messi had wanted to go play in Columbus, they would have made that happen too. So figure it out, the rest of the league. But Inter-Miami is coming and they are, uh, that's what they say, we coming, right? So Inter-Miami is coming too under Tata with Messi. So I, I said Messi was busy playing for Argentina. He was busy scoring for Argentina. Uh, Conmebol 2026 World Cup qualifying is off and running. World champions Argentina victorious in their first game, 1-0 at home against Ecuador. Messi with a free kick late. The 104th of his international career. Uh, he's still going strong. He'll be 39 come 2026. The big question is, is whether he has another World Cup in him. What do you think? I mean, what, 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 what would stop him? I mean, next summer playing in Copa America. I mean, okay. Injury would stop him. And again, knock on wood, please, soccer gods, don't, don't do that to us. But so far, so good. His body continues to hold out. Scored a wonderful free kick. So obviously, his time in MLS is not hurt. How is it possible, Monsi, that Messi can go to Major League Soccer? All right? This podunk type of league where the defending is horrible and it's a, a farmer's league and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and yet, when he goes back to the national team, he doesn't miss a beat and still can score an incredible free kick and lead his Argentina team in qualifying right now. Yeah, I don't think... I don't think he stops uh, until, until 2026. And this is a surprise to me because I didn't think he was going to last through 2026. But, I, but, but after he wins the World Cup, I think there's just a feeling, it's all right, you've done it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. And yet, by all accounts right now, he still loves playing for the national team. He still is a, a contributor to the national team. So he's not a detriment to what's going on. He still physically is able to do it. And... It's less than three years until the World Cup. Yeah, the thing I've read is he likes the idea of playing in a World Cup without the pressure to win it because he's already done it. So yep. he feels liberated right now. And so that might be a reason to go play in another World Cup. I mean, look, we're, we're excited from a Fox perspective for Copa America next year for a number of reasons, not the least of which is to have a Messi-led Argentina and being played here in the United States. And can you imagine a, a Messi-led Argentina in 2026, again, here in what, would, what will be his backyard of the United States relative to his play for Inter-Miami? That would be mwah, beautiful. Uh, next up for them, away to Bolivia. So they have to deal with the altitude Ooh. there. Uh, Brazil hammered Bolivia at home 5-1. Rodrigo and Neymar, each with two goals. Rafinha got the other. For Neymar, goals 78 and 79 of his international career, which according to FIFA means he's surpassed Pele as Brazil's all-time leading scorer. The Brazilian Federation says otherwise. They have Pele with 95 goals because they count goals he scored in friendlies against club teams. That's been like a raging debate in Brazil the last couple of days, believe it or not. So... <laughs> <laughs> so wait, they just so, can't so, count? So the one, uh, the one country where this achievement by Neymar is not being recognized is his own in Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, refuse to, they refuse to do it. He, you know, I, I watched some of this game, and he's still really good. Okay, when, when he gets going, it is just amazing, his ability to beat players and to find space. I mean, come on. Now, if you'll indulge me, I have yes. a few thoughts on okay. this game. Uh, first off, home to Bolivia is the easiest fixture in all of South American football. Secondly, this formation, which Chichi used at the World Cup, which Fernando Geniz trotted out for this game with Neymar, two wingers, and a center forward, there's still some questions about whether this can work against elite opposition. I know that Geniz, it's like this positionless approach where players have freedom to go all over the place, but in essence, it's a 4-2-4. And against an elite team, you run the risk of being outnumbered in the midfield, asking too much defensively, of those two central midfielders. The other point I would make 
is it's September of 23. The next World Cup is in the summer of 26. There's still a real question as to what kind of shape Neymar is going to be in come 2026, given all the injuries, his age. He's now going to be playing in Saudi Arabia. So there is a risk in continuing to build a team around him. But taking all those caveats out of the way, uh, with each injury he picks up, you worry if he's going to lose his burst. And this was impressive. He hadn't played a competitive match in six and a half months, and he shows up and he looks this dynamic, as you said, blowing past players like they're not even there. Incredible. Uh, so, I mean, hats off to him on that. And on the head coach, Fernando Diniz, again, the Brazilian Federation has created a very odd dynamic here because he's been hired for one year just to hold things down until Ancelotti is available in the summer of 2024. But Fernando Diniz is probably the best Brazilian coach right now. And he's considered the one true romantic uh, in Brazilian football in terms of his style of play. His, his club team, he's doubling up right now, Fluminense, is in the semifinals of the Libertadores. They face Johnny Cardoso's Internacional in the semis. So they might win that competition. And if he wins that and has good results with the national team, there's going to be a real sentiment of, forget Ancelotti, just stick with this guy. And it's going to create a very awkward dynamic there. It's, oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. I mean, if, if they are flying, and then, I mean, it's, I guess it's the best possible situation for him, but for Ancelotti coming in, like, oh, I hope I don't screw this up. Yeah. And then one last thing on Neymar. Let's, let's go with FIFA and say he did break the Brazil scoring record. It means Italy, we've talked about this before in the podcast, is the only elite soccer nation that still has a quote-unquote old-timer as its all-time leading scorer. Luigi Riva still holding firm with just 35 goals, mind you. Nobody's been able to top that. But every other major soccer nation, uh, Argentina, it's Messi. Brazil, it's Neymar. Uruguay, it's Luis Suarez. Um, England, it's Harry Kane. Germany, it's Miroslav Klose. Spain, it's David Villa. Netherlands, it's Robin Van Persie. France, it's Olivier Giroud. Uh, Portugal, Cristiano Ronaldo. So it's kind of interesting. Well, that the record for Italy is 35. I mean, I guess it makes sense relative to a country and culture that <laughs> built their, their name and their success off of kind of defending and not being expansive in the way that they play. But that is still, that's still a little strange. strange. 35 in 42 games. So a guy that only played 42 matches for Italy is their all-time leading scorer. That's crazy. Yeah. My goodness. You're, just one more South American score I want to get in there. Uruguay, who are now managed by Marcelo Bielsa. 3-1 mm-hmm. home win over Chile. Good start for them. They're now away to Ecuador. Brazil, I, I neglected to say, they're away to Peru uh, in their second game. So we'll see how those unfold. And to your point, U.S. fans should be tracking the progress of these South American teams because they're going to face them in the Copa America next summer. When does the qualifying for Comitable end? Because this was the first one to start up. So yeah, this is a in, long yeah, Great, it's right? quite the marathon. Ends in 2025. And it's now 10 teams, six automatic spots because right. of the expanded World Cup. And then another team goes to the playoffs. So you really have to screw up. To- <laughs> potentially seven of the 10 teams. After yes. two and a half years of qualifying, seven of the, potentially seven yes. of the 10 teams are actually going to go to 2026. Uh, you mentioned the Copa America next summer on Fox Sports. The other big tournament we're covering is the Euros, hosted by Germany. Uh, their preparations for the Euros uh, not going too well. They suffered another defeat on Saturday, 4-1 to Japan in Wolfsburg. And that spelled the end for Hansi Flick. He was fired the next day after two years in charge. Hansi took over in 2021, won his first eight, but then just four wins in the last 17. Uh, so he is out as Germany coach nine months before the Euros. Let me read you the starting 11 for Germany, okay? And tell me if there isn't a coach out there, whether it's a Greg Berhalter or anybody else that wouldn't say, yeah, give me that, all right? Ter Stegen in goal, all right? Kimmich, Zula, Rudiger, Schlotterback, uh, Emre Can, uh, Gundogan, 
uh, Sané, Wirtz, Gnabry, and Havertz. I mean, come on, man. Yeah, it, it, come on. It might not be vintage Germany, but this no. is not a country that stopped producing players and you look at their lineup and you think, oh my God, of course they're struggling. This is embarrassing that this is the lineup they're trotting out. It's still a, a talent pool filled with world-class players. So I agree with you. They should I, be better than me. I know they haven't replaced Klosa in terms of that traditional type of person up top and Timo Werner didn't quite work out and now Kai Havertz. I, I, I get that. But they should be better. Now, this is a beautiful ruthlessness in the way that Germany is dealing with this. And I think it's, it's an emergency situation because in nine months, they are going to host a tournament. It's not just going to the Euros. It is hosting the tournament. And I think they are worried about getting embarrassed. And you, you look back to, uh, to 2006 and what happened then. And even though they didn't win, there was a unity and there was a general sentiment in Germany that this is a team to believe in. This is a team to be proud in, proud of. And this is a team that going forward gives us hope in the same way that we talk about wanting that type of belief to come out of the U.S. men's national team um, or, uh, or Greg Berhalter in terms of that leadership. And that's what you need. You need that type of leadership, whether it's the, you know, you can say what you want about Jurgen Klinsmann and Yogi Lowe and Ralph Rangnick and all these, but there was a recognition when it came to the reboot that happened that we're not, not only are we not heading in the right direction, but big, bold types of decisions have to be made and there has to be buy-in. And that's exactly what they got. Well, they don't have time to do that in the next nine months. So the only thing that they can do is change who the leadership at the top is in terms of a, uh, of a coach. And that person's going to come in and be tasked with doing better with, like we said, what is an incredible array of talent out here that consistently now is underperforming. And look, I know there were a lot of people that believed that Hansi Flick was the answer. All right. And, and you, would, you would be justified given his reputation and given his track record. And for whatever reason, it didn't work. And this group that he has out there, despite the undeniable talent, oftentimes looks like they are dis disinterested. And whether it's they're disinterested with Hansi Flick or they're disinterested just in terms of representing Germany, that is a problem going forward that they're at least trying to nip in the bud to the extent that they can by making a change right now. Remember, they've crashed out in the group stage of the last two yep. World Cups. Japan beat them in the group stage of this last World Cup. They beat them again here. In terms of replacements for Hansi, they have a friendly uh, Tuesday against France in Dortmund. Rudy Voller will take charge on an interim basis. Names mentioned so far. Uh, Louis van Hall, Zinedine Zidane, and Julian Nagelsmann, who's the best German option available. He's unemployed right now. And that's an interesting part of this equation. I read an article which mentioned that in passing that Klopp and Tuchel are not even options. And they suffer from that. The fact that the best German coaches are so good, they have these plum club jobs and they're not going to leave to take over the national team. And from a scheduling perspective, the potential is out there for the first game for whoever does take over. Uh, because we know Rudy Villa is going to be there in an interim capacity here in this, uh, this next game. The next window, keep in mind, the U.S. plays against Germany. So potentially, Greg Berhalter and company could face the new leadership of whoever it is that, uh, that they decide for, uh, for Germany. My goodness. Interesting times when it comes, uh, comes to Germany. Well, G Germany, I mentioned they face France on Tuesday. Their next two games in the October winter against the U.S. and Mexico. They play the U.S. at Rentschler Field in Connecticut, and then Mexico will be at Lincoln Financial Field. Speaking of Mexico, uh, in terms of what they're up to in this window, uh, they rallied from two goals down to draw Australia 2-2. Uh, this was at AT&T Stadium in Arlington. 
uh, during the Gold Cup, I referred to games at the AT&T Stadium as being in Dallas, and I got an angry uh, tweet from an Arlington native who felt slighted. So this really? was in Arlington. But I think when it comes to the World Cup, the, uh, the, you know, one of the host sites is Dallas. We're not calling it Arlington, I don't think, from a FIFA uh, perspective. Take that up with FIFA. Okay, whatever. Uh, Santi Jimenez missed a penalty in this match. Raul Jimenez then converted from the spot later on. So Mexico, this was their first match since appointing Jaime Lozano as the permanent as coach. Permanent, you know, right. we had him in the Gold Cup as interim and he yep. won that tournament. And so he got the job permanently. Um, next up for Mexico, they'll face Uzbekistan. So we'll be able to do a little compare and contrast with the U.S. Uh, they face Uzbekistan in Atlanta, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So what if they uh, win? What, what if Mexico wins one nothing, but it's beautiful and romantic in the way that they win? I would take that over the U.S. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, uh, one more I want to squeeze in here. Uh, another friendly on Tuesday. Scotland faces England at Hampden Park in Glasgow. How about Scotland, by the way? My uh, goodness. They are flying five wins out of five in Euro qualifying. And even though they're playing a friendly on Tuesday, there are other games going on in their group. And depending on those results, Scotland could clinch a berth to the Euro. Steve Clark doing a great job. Scott McTominay can't stop scoring. Um, on the England side, by the way, I can tell you from being in Madrid for the past uh, few days, Jude Bellingham owns that city. Everywhere you go, you see right. people with Jude Bellingham jerseys on. So, yeah, yeah what we, a player We, we talked is. about what a, an incredible uh, start to his Spanish adventure. And this might be a friendly, but no love lost between Scotland and England. You've seen Braveheart, right? I have seen it. What a yes. film. Uh, hey, look, any tournament is better with Scotland being there. Did you know I saw... I saw your Brazil play Scotland back in the 1990 World Cup in Italy. It was one of the games that I, uh, that I went to. Uh, they, they, they make it better. 1-0 Brazil. Milich with the winner in that one. Uh, this match, by the way, is to celebrate the 150th year anniversary of the first ever international game played, which was between Scotland and England back in 1872. And 1872? So, yes. You don't say. My goodness. Um, all right, cool. Anything else? That's it. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexa. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your questions, comments, concerns. Uh, if you're doing it on the traditional social media platforms, keep in mind that it's S-O-T-U with Alexi. And use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there when you do send in uh, questions. And if you want to do it uh, telephonically, you know it, you love it. Our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. What do we got this week, Mossy? Uh, a couple of voicemails. Let's listen to the first one right now. Hey, Lex and David, this is Justin DeLang from Flagstaff, Arizona. And I just wanted to ask you what the over-under is on Christian Pulisic scoring 10-plus goals this season in Serie A. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Okay, so we, uh, we talked uh, with Stu the other day about, you know, what a wonderful start it has been for Christian Pulisic in Italy and how good he has looked, uh, not just playing one position over there on that left-hand side, but kind of being given carte blanche and it is translated into goals and opportunities. He's the player of the month for Milan and all that. 
so yeah, I will I will take the over. I think he can get double digits. Absolutely. I I think that the role that he is playing and the chances that he is going to get playing for Milan would would absolutely lead him to uh to score 10 goals. So I'm I'm good with I'm good with that. With the caveat as always with Christian Pulisic is that and he's been pretty good of of late of staying healthy and I hope that he stays healthy. I'm knocking on wood uh going forward uh, that he does. But again, the joy that he has shown so far is wonderful for him. Now, it should be noted and we we talked about this earlier that from a national team perspective, while he got on the ball a lot the other day against Uzbekistan, he really wasn't as effective as we have seen him in the past. Finished his uh, penalty. He has yet to miss a penalty for the national team, so he's money when it comes to penalties. But uh, it would be nice to see some of that Milan Christian Pulisic show up uh, against Oman here. Uh, when is it? Tomorrow. Uh, I agree with you on the over. This has been an incredible fit. We talked about when we did all those segments on possible Pulisic destinations, we both thought AC Milan could be a good landing spot for him, and it's proven to be so. Yeah, I agree with you. Slotting into that attack with Rafael Leon and Giroud, uh, if he stays healthy, he's going to have a very good season. You can tell already, and I think he will go past 10 Serie A goals. Mossy, when all is said and done, when it comes to Christian Pulisic, and we, we've put so many eggs in the Pulis- uh, Pulisic basket, and I think it's right and fair for us to do it, given his talent at such a young age and his trajectory and pathway that he has taken. When all is said and done and Christian Pulisic stops kicking a ball, where do you think he is going to be in the pantheon of uh, American players? I think he's got a good chance to be number one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's got at least a couple of more World Cups uh, coming his way, which is kind of sometimes where you establish who you are. He continues to play well and stays healthy. And we have yet to see Christian. It's, it's funny. We, we talk about him as if he is this grizzled old veteran, but we have yet to actually see Christian Pulisic in what is traditionally looked at as the prime of a career in that 28 area where the physical part of it is established, but the mental part is all also caught up with it. And you're, you're in your peak and your prime going forward. So I think I, I remain, as a lot of people do, very, very bullish on what Christian Pulisic is and continuing what he can be going forward. And I agree with you, Mossy. I think when all is said and done, the Mount Rushmore type of, uh, of image and existence for him is absolutely there to, to be taken, provided, again, that he, uh, that he stays healthy. What else we got? Another voicemail should oh, be interesting. Okay. Let's take a listen to this. Hello, Lexi and Mossy. This is Jonathan from Richmond. Um, I've been waiting to get the pod going again because there was something Alexi said while in Australia that I feel like warrants an explanation um, and is completely not soccer-related. So while in Australia, Bruce Springsteen was playing, and Alexi, you said that you felt that Bruce Springsteen was overrated. Um, while I may disagree with you, I would like you to explain how you rate a band or a musician and why you find Bruce Springsteen overrated. Uh, I also throw you a lifeline in that a friend of yours and mine and a fellow podcaster, Taylor Rockwell from the Total Soccer Show, often talks about uh, bands or soccer players being properly rated. So um, you may revise your take and say Bruce Springsteen is properly rated if you so choose. Thank you for your time and keep up the good work, fellas. Oh, Look at uh, Jonathan from Richmond coming in. Listen, I, I love the fact that uh, that you listened, and I love the fact that you called up and l- let me know that you disagree with uh, 
my take on on Bruce Springsteen. And I know I am in the, I, I think I'm in the minority. I don't know. I mean, when you really, if I, were, if I were really to go out there and ask people, I think a lot of people just automatically assume and go along with the narrative that this is the best thing since sliced bread when it comes to uh, a, a musician. And don't get me wrong. I, there are some songs and that, that I love. For example, my my favorite uh, Bruce Springsteen song, and I know this is maybe sacrilege because it's kind of later in his, uh, in his catalog, is Girls in Their Summer Clothes. I think it came out in 2008-ish or something like that. And, and the reason why I love this song is specifically because it doesn't sound like Bruce Springsteen. And so I think that's where my, my feeling, my emotion, my general reaction comes from that this particular song spoke to me, and you can pull it up, it's on Spotify or anything like that, that this particular song spoke to me and it is because it was so different than anything that I had heard. His voice sounds nothing like Bruce Springsteen. And again, this is not to say that he isn't one of the great musicians, uh, an American musicians, or that he is an incredibly talented and that he is, hasn't r- r- written some of the most popular and enduring songs when it comes to his rock catalog uh, out there. So I can appreciate and respect that. But I just think the, the general acceptance that he, is, that, that he is great, that's what I was pushing back against when it comes uh, uh, to, uh, to your point there, uh, there, Jonathan. And look, again, I can no more tell you, Jonathan, or you, Moss, or anybody else out there, what the best, insert music, art, uh, food, wine, a human being is out there. It's all ultimately subjective, and it's what hits you. And that Bruce Springsteen doesn't hit me in the way that it hits you, Jonathan, or obviously millions and millions of people out there. I, I'm not going to apologize for that. And look, there's, there's people that, whether it's me or Mossy, it doesn't hit them the right way. And they, they think that, uh, that, that I'm not good or, or that Mossy's not good or something like that out there. That's just, that's just the way that it goes. Uh, and, you know, so, so again, if you like Bruce Springsteen, and I know a lot of people, including people very close to me, that not only like him, but revere him and love him, and that I would even say something like that is a sacrilege. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Fill your boots. All right? Whatever makes you happy, go, uh, go for it. But that I don't feel the same way when I listen to Bruce Springsteen. And look, I, you know, there's, there's like, it's amazing when, when, a Bruce come, when a Bruce song comes on that doesn't sound like Bruce Springsteen. I, am gra- I gravitate that to, to that. You know, for example, the uh, Streets of Philadelphia theme that he uh, came out with. It was just so subdued. It was beautiful. It was, it, was, it, it was just really, really well done and wonderful. And again, it didn't sound like Bruce Springsteen. And so maybe it was just in my brain, it gets overplayed. But, you know, ultimately, you know, feel free to come back, Jonathan, and, and again, uh, you know, have your say when it comes to what I have said here. But as far as being overrated, I will stick by that and I will not apologize that and I will not change that because that's how I feel. And I will submit to you this. Uh, and, I, and then I will stop. I believe that there's a lot more people out there, whether you or I recognize it or know it or, or not, that feel the exact same way. And don't worry, Bruce is going to be just fine, <laughs> whether I'm a fan or not. And by the way, it's not that I'm not even a fan. 
because like I said, I can appreciate and respect everything that he does, but that, that he is overrated. Maybe he's a victim of his own success in that he got built up so much that everybody just with blinders on accepts the fact that everything that he has done is great and that he is the best that there ever was. All right. Anything else, Mossy? Uh, He is coming to the forum in December. I will be there. I believe Aaron Schechter will be there as well. Really? I have seen him live. Incredible performer. Yeah. I, will, I will say that. One of the great performers when it comes, uh, when it comes to the, the, the live and the ability to bring it. And obviously, he has an incredible catalog, but he's also able to do it in a live setting that makes you, whether you like him or not, just respect it. Aaron Schechter, by the way, the world's biggest Springsteen fan. I'm told she's having a conniption in the control room right now based on your take. So you'll have Get some explaining line. to do at the end Get of this. Get in line. Uh, Get in line. Uh, you uh, know what's a great Springsteen song? What's that? And we'll end on this. It'll segue into your uh, One for the Road, The Rising, which you yes. did right after 9-11. I, yeah, exactly. And and, and, and all, I will, uh, one more thing. Uh-oh. Just, just I had the segue. You, you did. I know. You, but he has gotten, I think, at times better with age. And you don't always say that about people that have had incredible success, you know, at a very young age uh, and in, in your 20s. But he has, like a fine wine, I think, gotten better. And I think that that's a testament to how good he is um, and what a wonderful musician. And I, I guess I'll even give it what a wonderful poet he is. All right, let's take a break, quick break. And when we come back, uh, I will have my one for the road. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the row. We are recording this on Monday, September 11th in 2023. 22 years ago on September 11th in 2001, obviously the horrific events of uh, September 11th. Back in 2001, Mossy, I was living here in Los Angeles. Specifically, I was living in Hancock Park, had no kids. Uh, I was not uh, married, and I was playing for the Los Angeles Galaxy at the time. Now, this was back before what I guess we call now uh, Dignity Health, back before the Home Depot Center, back before anything was happening down there in Carson, California, and the Los Angeles Galaxy, we were training and playing our games up there at the Rose Bowl. Obviously, with the change of time, uh, the events were happening uh, at you know, nine-ish Eastern Standard Time, and we were still asleep. And I got a call from my brother saying, hey, you got to get up and turn on the, uh, the television, which I did. And like so many millions around the country and around the world, started seeing these incredible images. And we had training set for that day. And so at one point I had to leave the television, get in the car and drive up to Pasadena where the Rose Bowl is and where our training facility was. And I'll never forget, we walked into the Rose Bowl locker room and our coach at the time was the late, great Ziggy Schmidt. And we sat down and obviously this was happening in real time and everybody had gotten up and realized how uh, tragic and momentous this moment was, but we still had training. And back in that day, nowadays it would have been kind of like a, a WhatsApp type of situation where everybody got information very quickly, but And we showed up there thinking that, all right, we need to go to training and we'll figure it out when we get there. And Ziggy Schmidt walked in and very quickly and very calmly said, this is not a day for training. This is not a day for soccer. This is a day to go home and to the extent that you can be 
uh, be with your family and friends, or at least touch base with them. And that's all that he said. And that was all that needed to be said. And we all went home. And then, like everybody around the world and around our country, watched the events continue to, uh, to unfold. We had, I think, a couple of uh, days off. Our league in MLS, like most leagues, were shut down for a period of time. When we came back to playing a few weeks uh, later, and the decision to play was made by all of the different leagues and the commissioners and everybody involved, our first game, uh, or one of our first games, was actually back on the East Coast against what at that point would have been the Metro Stars, now, now the Red Bulls. So right back uh, on the East Coast. So we get there, and uh, I'll never forget, I was drawn, as a lot of people were, to what we had seen on television, which was right across the Hudson River there, which was Manhattan, and we were staying in New Jersey. And I got together a group of players, including, if I remember correctly, uh, Sasha Victorine and Peter Vaganas, and maybe some other younger players. And I said, listen, I am going to go over to Manhattan. I'm going to get as close as I possibly can to what is happening to get a on-the-ground type of feel. And we went across in, uh, I think we took, uh, you know, the, uh, I think we probably took a car at that point and went over. And by that point, you could not get as far as you can get, obviously, in, in the moment. And they had barricaded roads. And so we got as far as we possibly could. But you could still not just smell, but you could feel what was happening in terms of the dust in the air. And you could hear the construction. And you could see the lights of Ground Zero down there. And it was just incredibly moving and an incredible wait. And again, we only got so far, but it was all happening within our lives and within this season. Then we continued on. And it it is obvious to everybody that things were never the same. And even coming in here today, Mossy, talking to the young men and women that make us look good, (laughs) and there are a lot of young uh, folks that work here at Fox, you know, some of them either weren't born. Uh, some of them were very, very young, two years old. I was talking to someone earlier and uh, even producer Sean telling about going in to his uh, school and he was a young boy and taking role as everybody was gathered around and everybody has a story. But and I'm 53 years old right now. And this day comes around each year. And as we get further and further from it, There are generations that are further and further from it and that either weren't born or certainly don't, it doesn't hit them in the same way. And the same way that when, you know, when I was growing up and I would hear talk of, you know, the the JFK assassination or Pearl Harbor, these types of things, they were things in, in storybooks or they were things that people talked about. And that's just what time, time does. But, you know, it was part of Obviously, that moment, it was part of that year. And from a soccer perspective, we, you know, we continued to do, to do tributes and to do charities and to do recognitions in that moment. And in a moment in time where we are, let's be honest, so divided as a country, this was a moment where we came together for the worst possible reason. 
but it was a moment where everybody came together. And I wish at least I could have bottled what that felt like to be united together in saying that this is wrong, but this is not going to break us and that we are going to unite regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our histories, regardless of our political affiliations, because you know, we don't have those types of moments. And God forbid we ever have another one because we don't want that in order to have those types of moments. But I do remember this feeling of being part of this country that I love and that country coming together in a way that I haven't felt since. And it's a pity that that's what it took to bring us together in that moment. But, uh, you know, the continued remembrances and the continued condolences and the continued tributes um, to the families and to the friends and to the communities and to ultimately the country and the world that on that day experienced something like, uh, like no other. Uh, I hope that they don't dissipate. I hope that they don't go away. And I hope that the generation that was there is able to at least help those next generations understand what happened, why it happened, how it brought us uh, together, and how we have to make sure that it doesn't ever happen again to the extent uh, that we can. And from a soccer perspective, like I said, you know, I have all of these different memories. And I I've forgotten so much crap when it comes to the things that happened on the field, scores and goals and moments and all that kind of stuff. But I'll never forget that day of waking up and going to training there with, uh, with the Los Angeles Galaxy. So I hope that everybody today, and if you're listening to this past the day, it's never too late to think back and um, to recognize that incredible day of pain and sadness uh, that was put upon this nation and recognize that hopefully this next generation doesn't have to deal with any of those types uh, of moments, moments, but still can find some way to, uh, to unite without having those types of moments. Mosky, anything before we go? Only thing I'll add is, um, have you been to the 9-11 Memorial and Museum? I have. It's just incredible. It's incredibly moving, and I think it's incredibly important. Uh, and, you know, I know you're a, a museum buff, and for those generations that I'm talking about, if and when you get there, absolutely have it on your list, uh, list to do because it, it brings into focus what happened. And, you know, a lot of the things from the past, because we live in an age of photography and camera phones and all that kind of stuff, so much more is documented. And the amount of documentation on that day from a visual perspective, from an audio perspective is, like I said, just incredibly moving and incredibly jarring and should serve as a reminder again. So yeah, I have been there and uh, I will go again. It will be something that you can go back and still take something more from it each and every time. And uh, it, it never gets old or boring relative to a museum. Uh, and, and it's more than a museum. It's a, it's a tribute. Anything? All right, my friend. Uh, welcome back, Mossy. Uh, we've had a hell of a summer and it's, uh, it's good to have you back here. Like I said, Stu Holden did a wonderful job and uh, we thank him for that. But it's nice to have you back. I can't tell you the amount of people that come up to me and ask me about you. And I've talked to you, whether it's my, my, my mom or, or anybody else out there, people love you and uh, they welcome you back. And I'm glad we didn't lose you to Ibiza or Ibiza or Ibiza, Ibiza or whatever. Ibiza, yeah, whatever it is. Whatever it is that they, uh, they call over there. But evidently you had a good time. So I don't think it's your last trip over there. 
And I, I do want to say congratulations to Keith and Michelle. I didn't mention his wife's name at the top, but yeah, lovely wedding, and I wish them congratulations. All the best uh, best wishes. It sounds it sounds awesome. Do you do you do a honeymoon if you have a wedding, a destination wedding in Visa? Uh, Keith was calling the Galaxy game on Sunday. Got uh, right back. There we go. It. He's back at it. He's back <laughs> at it. You know, he's a glutton. Well, well done. Hey, listen. You're not, you didn't just marry Keith Costigan. You married soccer. So, <laughs> good luck with that. You can talk to my wife about that. All right. We will uh, we'll talk to you again later on this week. So we're back at it twice a week on the State of the Union podcast. Keep reviewing. Keep rating. Keep subscribing. Keep doing all the different things that you do. We love uh, that you uh, that you do that. Keep sending in your questions uh, on the uh, on the, uh, the handles out there on social media, SOTU with Alexi. If you want to send in uh, in questions, keep uh, doing that. 657-549-2297. 657-549-2297, our State of the Union podcast hotline. We'll talk to you again later on this week. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the day.